Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. What a couple of weeks we've had in global equity markets. Stocks are doing better than good. What's changed, the data or the way investors respond to it? Joining us now, Michael Purvis of Tallback and Capital Advisors. Good morning to you, Mike. Good morning, John. Your thoughts on that question. What has changed? Is the data getting better? Has the data changed? Or is it the way investors are reacting to it? I think it's the latter, John. Um, you know, the earnings season has thus far uh, been, an, been an important affirmation of what the bulls would like to see to keep the markets moving higher. But again, I don't think there's any real big surprise there, right? The economic data for most of the economy has been really pretty constructive and affirming that, you know, the earnings are going to the earnings story will be pretty good. I mean, that's the new data that we've been having over the last few weeks that sort of set up this this melt up into fresh highs here. Um, so I, I think the question is, is, um, you know, are the bulls right or is there complacency? And, it's, you know, as a strategist, guessing where the S&P is going to be between now and the year end is a very it's, it's always a tough question. But it, it's always um, but this one seems particularly tough because. If you look, read across yeah. the asset classes, you, you will see there is, uh, you know, the whole trade tensions have been completely, almost not completely thrown out, but largely pushed to the side for right now, right? And uh, the VIX curve, the level of VIX, uh, the put call skew, all those types of metrics are suggesting that, hey, everything is going to be pretty good. We're built up into year's end, but we've seen a lot of these metrics be uh, very range-bound and well, volatile. And right now, they're at the one side of the range. Michael, I'm sorry to reveal this with the close we saw on Friday. S&P out to near record high, Dow behind on that 26.958 on the close. The fact is, we've got three elephants in the room this week. We've got GDP, first look, 1.6% is a stunning Bloomberg survey statistic. Then we've got a small Fed meeting where, you know, John Jim Reed of Deutsche Bank was with us, and they're guiding towards maybe three rates cuts fine and then we've got jobs day on friday what are we going to be like on monday i, I mean with three <laughs> ginormous events how do we shape up week from monday besides the jets and giants will do you lose? want some tomorrow's prices as well you just want to get to next week it's me and the tots we want to get the next week michael where are we going to be next week well you know my guess is that um uh, a lot of that you know let's let's unpack that one at a time um on the GDP print, I'd be, I'd be like, uh, those prints are, are very informative from a very long-term point of view. But in terms of whether the market's going to melt off or, or push down and, you know, between now and the end of the year, I, I would say that will be sort of a, an interesting thing to look at. Um, but again, so much of that GDP deacceleration has been already with us for so long. Um, on the Fed, uh, I think the Fed is, is going to be, you know, that'll be interesting here, but I think the, the Powell, um, and John, you're going to disagree with this notion, but I think Powell has been learning how to master a little bit of this, you know, how to, you know, sort of give us a slightly hawkish cut and, and let the market so that he's still there, even if it's not exactly what the money markets uh, are, are screaming for. 
um, or what some of the other uh, rate strategists might be uh, calling for. I'm not here to disagree um, with you, Mike. I mean, over the last 12 months, I think it's fair to say, relative to where he was 12 months ago, he's a much better communicator. The real challenge for him this week is that we won't have a summary of economic projection. There will be no forecasts. The guidance will be in the words of the statement and in the words of the Federal Reserve Chairman. What kind of guidance are you looking for? You know, I, I, I am... Um, there's been this massive disagreement between the money markets and 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 Powell sort of uh, narrative forwards. Um, that's been a defining feature of this year. I think Powell is going to be, um, you, you know, pretty conditional about the need to do anything substantially further to give us like, you know, uh, you, you know, another three or four um, even cuts. I, I think he's going to be like sort of we're going to go this one 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 day at a time. Um, uh, and I think it's important to recognize yeah. that this one, this is one of my overarching themes about, about rates, which is that so much of the narrative for cutting over the last six months has been about rest of world weakness. Well, rest of world weakness is already reflected in that bond deal being at minus 50 or 60 basis points, which ricochets right back into our treasure, our rates anyway, right? So if rest of world weakness, European weakness, China, and so forth, if that stabilizes or even picks up a little bit, um, those interest rates are going to go up a lot. Yeah, but, but That's Mike, going to spill over fast here and it, and it quickly erode Powell's narrative. Michael, one final question. We're up 21% year to date in SPX. I've never seen a more miserable market. Forget about buy or sell here. How does Michael Purvis hold here equities this morning? Well, uh, you know, look, I, I think this, this rally has been hated uh, for 10 Got years. Got it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no, but now it's like the, record hate. Yeah, no, I know. I mean, look, you you have to triangulate back and forth between the, uh, the uh, you know, the valuation, the quality of the earnings, the quantity of the earnings, um, you know, where rates are and, and so forth. Um, yeah. You know, that's what strategists do. Um, but, but right now, putting aside larger questions like the 2020 election, which are and, and all that right now, I, I think you can you can make the case that um, equities right now are um, – uh, the case for massive bullish price action is very remote, right. but the case for them to hold together, to oh. put together, you know, five percent gains with a two percent dividend yield—that sort of a, uh, a reasonable and conservative base case—I right. think you can make that case right now. Michael Purvis, thank you so much with Tall Back and this morning. This is a joy. It's on Argentina and the distance to Argentina, but it's also on the protest worldwide. Axel Christensen is with BlackRock, chief investment strategist for Latin America, but far more a student of his Chile. We want to get to Argentina, Axel, but first I've got to ask you about your Chile. What is the level of protest in Chile? What does that signal to the nation and to greater South America? Hi, Tom. Well, definitely uh, more than a million people showed up this weekend to manifest that they're not happy, uh, that there are discontents around how the paradox of one of the uh, highest growing countries in Latin America uh, has not been able to uh, spread the wealth of that growth. And uh, the government is taking note. Uh, it came out with uh, yeah. some measures uh, to address this concern, Tom. I mean, the minister, John, I think it was on Saturday, just said uh, the cabinet, Everybody resigned. We're going to start all over. You know who used to live in Chile? 
Bloomberg's Lisa Bravitz. Did she? Used to live in Chile. It's true. How many years ago? A long time ago. Is this, I don't how, is this when you became a journalist for the first time? Yeah, actually, I worked at El Mercurio. You wrote in, you wrote in Spanish before you wrote I, in English. Before I could even write or, or read in Spanish, I wrote in Spanish. You know, it's an interesting question, though, because Chile always was sort of the humble uh, stepchild of Latin America, although it was also the economic stalwart. And Argentina was sort of the bad boy, but they had uh, a certain sort of uh, verve to them that everyone was jealous of. And I'm wondering, Axel, from your perspective, uh, since I'm sitting here and I'm going to just crash your party to learn more about uh, soccer and 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 generally uh, all things surveillance. But Axel, I, I just have to, to wonder from your perspective, uh, you know, whether this sort of unrest that we're seeing in Chile uh, is sort of a, a tipping point for all of Latin America that people aren't really recognizing. Well, uh, Lisa, I'm, I'm happy to know that, you know, you know, Chile, I'm, I'm curious to see if, if you're a Colo Colo fan or University of Chile, but we can talk about that later on soccer. <laughs> sure. Uh, uh, definitely, I, I, I think there's two lessons to be learned, not only from uh, other countries in Latin America, but uh, overall. One, uh, I would uh, point out to what I call the tyranny of, st- uh, of statistics. If we look at the numbers that Chile has, and they've been quite impressive, uh, we uh, usually just focus on the averages. So if we look at GDP per capita, uh, pretty good uh, at a PPP level. Uh, Chile is uh, you know, uh, coming in with uh, around $25,000 per year. But there's a lot of dispersion around uh, that number. So definitely uh, you know, inequality is, is, is a very, very high challenge for, for Chile. And the second, um, I think if, um, you know, if, if you think that uh, winning the war against poverty is hard, and that's what you know, a lot of institutions like the IMF and the World Bank are are built upon. Um, getting a very, very strong middle class is, is as uh, large as a task, and I, I think that's where Chile has come in short to uh, assure people that you know, once that they're in the middle class, that they can stay stay there. Um, middle class citizens in Chile face a very fragile situation; they're not getting um, much more support. Uh, from the government subsidies or social uh, welfare programs as they were uh, the families that are in a poor situation, they have to face a lot of, um, you know, costs, increasing costs of living by their own education costs, transportation costs, what have you. And and that's, uh, I think, a strong uh, element of their discontent. It was middle-class people protesting this weekend rather than low-income segments. Axel, what happens when you see these kind of pictures on the screen, though, for the tourist investor in EM right now, they see protests in Chile, they see the election in Argentina over the weekend, and it scares them off. Do you throw the whole of Latin into the one bucket right now? Does it all start to look a whole lot worse? Well, well, definitely not, Jonathan. Um, if we look at uh, Latin America, might seem like a very kind of uniform area, but it's, it's everything but that. If we look at Brazil right now, it's just last week, uh, Congress approved a very, very necessary social security reform that is uh, an important step into uh, improving uh, its uh, very difficult fiscal situation and debt situation. So, so they've, definitely other countries in the region ha- have been uh, showing a more positive uh, note. Well, and, and Brazil is very important g- given the weight it has in Latin America. Axel, uh, cut uh, to so, the so chase. I'll be yeah. a bit more complex. Yeah, Axel, cut to the chase. Chile had the will to get out of their mess at some point what's the will meter this morning in buenos aires i mean do they have does the left or frankly the right do they does the society have a will to finally play by the rule book of all other developed nations well i think they'll have to uh 
Tom, they don't have a lot of options right now. Uh, if you look at the numbers of the Argentine economy, if you look at what markets have been pricing in since the preliminary um, elections back in August, they'll have to find an agreement. And if you look at the results of yesterday, um, although uh, President Macri will not be reelected, his coalition did a lot better uh, than expected. And if you look at the Congress results, they have to uh, find a common ground. The new government, the more moderate uh, government leaving office, they will have to uh, find a common ground to pull Argentina out of the very difficult situation they're currently at. So, Axel, essentially what you're saying is that President-elect Alberto Fernandez won't be as left-wing as some people worry he might be? Well, definitely he will have to negotiate uh, the more deep structural changes say if he wants to change the constitution in Argentina or, uh, you know, unwind some of the macro reforms, he will have to sit down uh, and negotiate a lot of the votes, especially in the lower house, Jonathan. What does currency disruption do here? I mean, we talked to a number of people this morning with the close rounded up to 60 Argentinian pesos per dollar. The black market is one estimate 16 percent above that. Can you measure at BlackRock a tip point on that currency where it becomes Zimbabwe-like? Well, Tom, um, if, if, uh, it's, it's already quite, quite difficult. Last night, it got buried a little bit after the uh, election results coming out. Yeah. But the central bank in Argentina just announced that they are um, you know, uh, putting a very, very strict limit on terms of how much dollars Argentines can purchase. It was um, not too long ago. Um, you know, uh, $4,000 a, a month. Now it's going all the way down to $200. That's very, very low. Uh, a lot of restrictions. Imp- uh, exporters have to li- sell their dollars in the local market in a very short uh, What uh, will that mean? It will beautifully explain, but well, Alex, uh, 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 Alex, Axel Christensen, what does that mean for society? That means Tom, that the economic authorities are really struggling to put a, a containment on the bleeding, which is pretty much on the currency side. So that is the first step. Once you get the currency more or less stabilized, then you can start tackling yeah. inflation and eventually uh, economic growth. But th- there is that, that's a critical path. It's, it's very hard to sh- shortcut that. Um, and get uh, growth if you haven't stabilized the currency first. Axel, just to find a couple of questions, um, a, a guidebook, if you will, for the rest of the trading day. The first print on dollar peso, when do we get that? Nine Eastern? And what kind of gap are you expecting in either direction? Well, um, since the elections were a little bit less um, you know, of an avalanche as the preliminary uh, results were back in August, um, we could see a little bit of a uh, of a bounce back from some of the uh, Argentine assets, mainly more on the bond side, perhaps equities. The currency is going to be much more influenced by the measures um, announced by the central bank. So we should see uh, uh, somewhat of a spike uh, of the dollar against the currency uh, of Argentine pesos starting this morning. From Miami, Axel Christensen of BlackRock, we really appreciate, Axel, your effort to be with us today. He is Chief Investment Strategist for Latin America. What I love about Stephanie Kelly is when she's with us, Aberdeen Standard, 
and and they've always got on TV that backdrop of Edinburgh Castle. Have you castle. ever been there? I, I've never been. No, I've been to Edinburgh a bunch of times. I've never made it to the castle. How have you been there without going to the castle? It's well, there because there's eight pubs on the way up. The oh, and you Edinburgh went on a bit of a pub road, a, a pub crawl to, to get there. Yeah, you know, it's like it's up on it's like Gibraltar, like it's up on a rock, and you know, it's it's very it's cool. gloomy and. Game of Thrones and all that. You're going to bring Stephanie in. Stephanie Kelly with us with uh, Aberdeen Standard Investments. Stephanie, uh, you and I talked about this earlier this morning, but I think it's really important to review. How remain is Scotland? Like, at the margin, does the Prime Minister pick up any of Scotland? I got to say, I mean, there are a couple of leave voting uh, constituencies, but, I mean, you've got they've got double trouble in Scotland. The first is... Uh, that most uh, constituencies, or at least a majority of voters, um, which obviously is a little bit different, uh, don't support re- uh, don't support Leave. They support Remain, and, and quite strongly, which is reflected in the SNP's strength here. But also the second issue that the kind of the, to add insult to injury for Boris Johnson is that the very very popular Conservative leader stepped down um, a couple of months ago, um, um, Ruth Davidson, and because of that, I think they've got double the issues in Scotland. I don't think Scotland is where they're looking to pick up seats, and I don't think it's where they will pick up any seats. Well, Stephanie, let's get to whether they can have an election first. The several roads <laughs> to getting an election for the Prime Minister. Talk to me about the several options that the Prime Minister could t- t- basically have before him through the next couple of weeks. So we've got, yeah, as you say, a couple of options. Obviously, tonight we'll see the more uh, maybe traditional option, uh, which ordinarily you would say should be enough uh, for a government to trigger an election, um, which is that they are going to uh, have a vote in the Fixed-Term Parliament Act as it stands today. You need a two-thirds majority in order to get a general election um, through a kind of an election vote, um, which is what we have tonight. It is unlikely that Labour will go for that for all the reasons we've talked about before. The Labour Party is deeply, deeply divided on the issue of Brexit and is struggling to kind of gain traction with its voters. It's actually losing a lot of voters, um, more so to the Lib Dems to, than the Conservatives, but actually really to both. Uh, so against that factor, what else could they do? If we think that they yeah. can't get two-thirds majority, um, then the other option they have is the SNP Lib Dem bill that there is, is being put forward, which essentially amends the Fixed-Term Parliament Act. So that the election is yeah. held on a specific date in December, um, and that only needs a simple majority yeah. to pass. So they could do that. And then the third kind of nuclear option is that they could uh, call the vote on confidence in themselves and hope that the uh, that the government uh, the whole, and basically support themselves in a vote of no confidence. So the Tom loves that idea. We have no vote. Just, we have no confidence in our own government. It's just Can you imagine like, selling that once I, the electorate. I read, I read, a, one, I read a one volume <laughs> on Wars of the Roses, and nothing has changed since Robert the Bruce and William Wallace and all that you back even farther stephanie one of your charms is you're not in london how's the british economy how's the united kingdom economy outside of london how's it doing yeah how's the united kingdom economy doing outside of london i mean i i it's a pretty good question i mean it's it's always a dangerous thing to say when you live in edinburgh which is kind of like the london of the north yeah <laughs> Very financial services based. Um, I think broadly speaking, look, we've already seen the kind of the impact that Brexit has had. There's been a lot of focus on, oh, you know, banks have got me wrong and Bank of England was wrong, saying there'd be a recession with Brexit and there wasn't. It's really important to bear in mind that, you know, the kind of growth we've seen in the UK has been really weak relative to their relative to its potential. And if you think about the industries that are unfortunately most likely to be affected, if you think about you know, agriculture, if you think about manufacturing, those are things that are outside of London. Those are things that, you know, are happening up and down the country, particularly in kind of the, the north of England. And so there is this kind of, 
I, I suppose, a, a tragic irony to the, the Brexit debate, which is all the conversations about, you know, the things that you can get from Brexit. From an economist perspective, we look at it and say, well, manufacturing and agriculture, at least in the short term, um, will be, you know, highly uncertain. I think that's what's reflected. Hey, Stephanie, we've got to leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us. Stephanie Kelly there of Aberdeen Standard. Stephanie, thank you. Senior political economist. John, I'm still not used to it. Tapestry. 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 It's the old coach. Okay. It's tapestry. Are you going to elaborate on some of this? We, we should talk to somebody who's encyclopedic on equity name changes. Okay. She's just, you know. She's, still working. Where are you going with this? She's with us every seven out of eight days. We're talking to her because it's up 21% SPX. Okay. Gina Martin Adams with us, head of equities, Bloomberg Intelligence. Gina's I mean, Gina, got no clue either. <laughs> give me give me an angle this morning. I mean, I got HSBC redo, telephone redo. I got massive mask of risk off. People are loving equities. It's got to be the most hated market of all time. Uh, it definitely is the most hated market of all time. If it's you look at institutional stunning. sort of confidence, it hit an all time low in December, January of last year, lower than the 2008-2009 lows. Let's so cut, it's, it's very hated. Let's cut to the chase. What does it signal when we see this? I mean, truly, I've never seen it like this. Do you say aberration? Do you say it's part of our equity theory that we have? It's part of our sentiment measures, which I do believe that you have to have a pretty strong handle on what sentiment is in order to get a pretty decent beat on where prices are going to go. I mean, frankly, everyone piled on the end of the boat that is very, very bearish. And the result is your downside is fairly limited. Now your upside is going to be framed by a case of beating those low expectations, which I think we're going through. Over the course of the last few weeks, more than 80% of S&P 500 companies have beat earnings expectations. How many? 80%. I did not know that. Yeah. Um, eight of 11 economic sectors are beating expectations. Energy is still a huge weak link, but in general, can I, can I, John, things are coming in better of, than poor forecasts. Can I get out of triple leveraged all cash? I think you might, time? you might have wanted to do that a, a few the years dollar ago. Dollar cost averaging? A, a few years ago, maybe, Tom. Gina, something happened last week. Two high-profile misses, Caterpillar, Amazon. Gap lower, you expect that. Then as the session progressed, we started to fill yeah. the gap. Yeah. Yes. Something about the way investors responded to data and information and earnings shifted in yeah. the last couple of weeks. What's your take on it? Well, I think, I think a lot of it was really over the last several months, investors fled any por- any type of risk. I mean, you had just persistent outperformance in very defensive strategies, bonds outperforming equities within the equity market, defensive shares outperforming cyclical shares. So part of it is just this frame, the, the setup coming into earnings was very, very bearish. There was an expectation we were going to fall into an earnings recession and we were going to see downdraft to 2020 expectations as well. And that just hasn't happened. As a matter of fact, forward earnings estimates are holding up much better than you would normally see in October. October is a month where you almost always record negative estimate revision for the year ahead forecast. Yeah. And we haven't seen that. And I think part of it goes back to what Tom was talking about with the European banks as an example, with the telecoms as an example. Companies are incredibly adept at rationalizing cost in this cycle. And the result of that is they're not laying off enough or cutting enough expense to really create a depression in economic growth, but at the same time, they are cutting enough to create a bottom in earnings and create some better margin outlook going forward. At the same time, frankly, 
just consensus forecasts for revenue growth and earnings growth were far too bearish headed into this quarter. It's just not that bad. And Gina, we're seeing this sentiment shift in the bond market too, Lisa. If you think about treasuries at the moment, the bad news is moving treasury yields lower less so than the good news is moving Treasury yields higher. Yeah, and we're going to probably hear from the Fed to this week about whether they think that people have gotten over their skis with bearishness. I love uh, some of the quotes in a story about how just because people are feeling bearish doesn't mean that there's going to be a recession. There's some pretty uh, mm-hmm. awesome quotes uh, from it, you know, Craig Torres of Bloomberg News writing it. But I do have to wonder when this is going to even out, if yields go up, whether that will actually make stocks look worse and whether that will sort of keep things in the range. What do you think, Gina? Yeah, I think it's a great point. We are sort of at that um, position right now where we have priced for much easier monetary policy. We have priced for lower yields. As a result, your future upside from equities probably needs to come from the earnings stream because unless the Fed's going to really push the limits even more than the bond market is expecting, which seems highly unlikely, you need to have price appreciation come from the earnings side. This puts the risk really later into November, December, because earnings will go on for the next several weeks and probably will continue to inflate um, stock prices as a result of overly bearish positioning. But going into November, December, January, then you've got to say, okay, are we going to actually continue to see this recovery in earnings growth to power stocks? Part of your advantage quickly here, Gene, is you've got an international feel with all of Bloomberg Intelligence. I just looked at the Stockholm Exchange set it in U.S. dollars, and it's truly a range breakout. Are you suggesting within equities we're seeing range breakouts? We are on the precipice of breakouts, especially in the U.S., but also in a lot of underappreciated markets overseas. Um, We noticed in our scorecard, for example, you usually want to be hugging U.S. stocks in an environment where you're a little bit more defensively sort of positioned. In our global scorecard, we started to push into Latin America and Canada and some areas outside of of the U.S. for the first time in more than six months in our last update. In the U.S., you're starting to see breakouts occur in some cyclicals, technology in particular. Financials is on the verge of better performance, certainly. There are still some pretty big, awful drags like energy, but there are names that I think are showing some signs of life. Five days a week, Gina Martin-Adams, she will be with us tomorrow, we hope. Uh, Bloomberg Intelligence and with equities, the spirit of our equity coverage. Banks that step back and try to think a little better. Wells Fargo has the Wells Fargo Institute for this. Away from buy, hold, sell, and much more about the bigger picture. Samir Sana joins us uh, now with the Wells Fargo uh, Institute. Samir, I, I want to talk about a single quote you've got from Mr. Buffet. The investor of today does not profit from yesterday's growth. Obviously, we expect out. What's the track record of getting right the expectation out into the future? It tends to be very difficult, Tom, and that's really why it's more about being prepared as opposed to trying to kind of predict when those bear markets and those recessions might hit. And so, you know, being almost 10 years into this, you know, very nice recovery with the markets having almost quadrupled, um, really it's all about preparedness, right? We'll, we'll, we'll kind of crib a little bit from the Boy Scouts, right? The always be prepared motto um, is really what makes most yeah. sense right now. Do you live day to day with the textbook that Sweeney, Keenan, Simone, uh, 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 learned from, which is a correction is 10%, a bear market is 18%, is there a new math? 
You know, I think that's kind of the generally accepted principle is about 10% of correction and 20% is a bear market. But, you know, we've, we've, for the report that we recently put out, we've chosen kind of a closing price basis. Um, and that's where we just, I think, barely skated by last, you know, fourth quarter. But again, we, we have had a couple of harrowing declines, 15, 16, and then the one more recently last year. Yeah, that's kind of where I want to go. I think I'm not sure people know what they should be preparing for. Should I be preparing for uh, the next three to five years of just lower returns, not the double digit returns? Or should I be preparing for something worse, something fourth quarter of 2018 like? So at least right now, what we see from our checklist is probably more lower growth and lower returns, but at some point we probably will have one of those fourth quarter oh, of on. last year. You, you take a round number, $100,000, you know at some point you're going to be down $35,000. That's the game. And, and I would suggest 99%, uh, particularly the youth of America, have never experienced <laughs> that. They have no yeah. clue. A lot of the trading desk uh, have folks no clue. have no clue. So absolutely, which is why, again, this is serving to be kind of a public service announcement of, you know, nothing in the report should shock anybody from the standpoint of, I think we all kind of know how theoretically bull markets should end. Um, but because it has been so long, I think we've lost a lot of that muscle memory. All right. So, it, you know, oftentimes bull markets end because the Fed ends them, whether they want to or not. It doesn't appear that's going to be the case here. So, Again, we're 10 plus years into this economic cycle. Are there sectors of the market that you feel more comfortable with than not? We do. So we, you know, like a lot of others, you know, have kind of gravitated more towards technology, towards consumer discretionary. We also like financials, which have been kind of the value play of, you know, du jour. Um, but more recently, we've also gotten less cyclical. So we've downgraded industrials, we downgraded energy, and we upgraded REITs and utilities. So again, the typical playbook is starting to play out, but again, it's very early. I'm up, I'm up, what am I up, 21% SPX year to date? Yeah. I mean, well, come on, it's the most unloved bull market ever. All of these smart guys are modeling single-digit actuarial assumption. You'll be lucky if you make 7%. You know, if you're 9%, you're an optimist, and we just keep going. Do you, would you just suggest that central bank fueled at the back end of your report? You talk about asset bubbles. Is that what we're living the the only thing we would push back a little bit on would be you know it, in January of 2018 we were at 2873 on the S&P so if you look at kind of what the the run rate right the Kager's been since then i mean really it would be kind of low single digits even year over year the S&P is only kind of batting about 4 to 5%. So what we would say is you've already kind of hit that stall speed from an S&P appreciation standpoint but absolutely calendar year you know 2019 has been a great year. How much do you think these macro events that Tom and I and the rest of folks in the news business spend a lot of time talking about, whether it's global trade, whether it's Brexit, you know, some of these big macro geopolitical issues, how much do you think they really have been impacting markets? We would say it, it impacts the level of volatility and it probably impacts the PE to a certain extent as to how comfortable can I get with the estimates out a year, two years, three years. But really, the last year or so has been much more driven by the Fed, which started with probably a rate hike that didn't need to happen in December, then pivoted and talked about how all of a sudden, you know, we aren't all that close to neutral. Um, and now is starting to cut again as part of a mid-cycle adjustment. That's probably been the biggest theme for markets over the last 12 months. So we're a third, in, a third of the way into earnings. Is anything causing you to spook you or, or make you even maybe incrementally more positive as we kind of try, grind through these earnings? No, not really. I mean, probably the, the, the trickiest part is just the fact that earnings continue to decelerate and the you know, effects of tax you know, reform continue to wane. So the question continues to be for markets is what's next, right? What's the next catalyst to drive us meaningfully higher? And that's, that's the one that we're struggling with. 
Right. Samir Samana, thanks so much for joining Samir, us. Thank you. Thank Fantastic. You. Samir is a Wells Fargo Investment Institute Senior Global Market Strategist. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.